0: This is the Sidcast, and I'm Sid Finkelstein. It's great to have you back with us. You know, uh, we're here in, uh, in spring and the cusp of summer. Have you seen the new Detective Pikachu Pokemon movie? And did you notice, if you've seen it, how the animated Pokemon blends so well with real-life human characters? It's not a particularly easy thing to pull off, and it made me think of, uh, of Gollum from Lord of the Rings. Also an animated character that constantly interacted with Frodo and Sam in the movies. Animation nowadays become really impressive uh to do what they're doing and our guest today is actually one of the people that has created and helped create the modern world of uh of animation and she's even uh, made um, Gollum come alive in in that movie uh, her name is Patricia Hanaway and what a great story she uh, she has uh, from uh, from Disney to uh, to Lord of the Rings to Stanford University to Dartmouth College uh, to having a gigantic influence on young uh, on young people and you know like a lot of uh, a lot of the guests in the Sidcast we talk about all sorts of things and um, one of them is uh, you know when 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 Patricia gets into her background and growing up as a kid her parents really wanted her to kind of follow the the straight and narrow you know uh, so are you a parent who who's taught your kid or your kids to develop practical skills to make the right choices or are you uh, you know someone a younger person someone in school a student who's heard this message about having to be practical kind of ad nauseum and you've had enough of it that's kind of the dilemma right um, how do you make that work and it made me think when when i listened to patricia talk about that first of all it's relevance it's practical for for everyone you know what do you say as a parent you want you want your kids to, to do great. You want them to have great opportunities and you don't want them to spend all their time doing things that have a a near zero probability of success. That's a tough thing to do. On the other hand, what else do we say? We say follow your passion. How many times have you said that? I bet you've said that to a lot of people. Follow your passion is kind of dangerous advice actually. Uh because first of all, when you're 18 or 16 or 20 or sometimes even thirty, do you really know what your passion is? You haven't lived life enough to know what your real passion is. Okay, maybe for some people I understand that you might, but for a lot of people they're not really. They're not sure. And following your passion is uh, is fine, but um, you got to be able to uh, survive. You got to be able to make a living. You got to be able to accomplish something. You got to be able to have an impact on the world in a positive way, and. Um, uh, so it's a tricky thing, and it's one of those uh, it's one of those topics that uh, we get into it a little bit in the uh, in the podcast. But I know a lot of people are thinking about it uh, thinking about it all the time. You know, the other thing that uh, that I wanted to mention real quick that uh, Patricia Hannaway talks about is uh, is about being uh, being different and how good it is. And uh, and that was that was her. I guess somebody who is as creative uh, as she as she is is going to be a little bit a little bit different, but. Um, Sometimes especially when you're younger, you think you know well i don 't really fit in I'm, I am different well, the fact that you don't quote fit in unquote doesn't really mean a ton uh, if you're different in a way that is that is interesting because everyone can find their community everyone can find people that uh, that will relate to you and that you can relate to uh, it's kind of amazing really that if you give it a chance, uh, really good things can happen i think I think especially for younger people be be careful about uh, about this problem of, uh, or this feeling that you got to fit in with everyone else. Uh, okay, fine. If that's who you are, that's great. But if you're different, if you, if you just kind of, you know, tick a little bit differently and beat to a different drum, uh, you should celebrate that and look for an opportunity in life, uh, in a career, in school and with friends and in relationships where people will appreciate you for who, who you are. And uh, I know that's a little easier said than done. But if you don't say it, then it's going to be hard to do it. And I think that's uh, these are among the things that uh, that come to mind when uh, um, when we talk to Patricia Patricia Hannaway. And what a what a story! You know, uh, how many times do you w- would you guess that the, the following words would be in the same in the same biography? Uh, Andy Warhol, uh, Wall Street, Toy Story, Shrek, Lord of the Rings, Stanford, Dartmouth. Um, and I actually could add a lot more to that, but that 's probably plenty you know uh, Patricia Hannaway has had an interesting and continues to have a fascinating career with a big with a I- big impact someone who 's thought about following her passion and someone who 's thought about how to do it in a practical way and hedging hedging your bets at the same time and en- ends up with a pretty fascinating career with lots of lessons for for lots of people so it's a pleasure. Uh, for us to uh, to welcome uh, Patricia Hannaway into the studio and to talk to us today on the Sidcast. Welcome to the Sidcast. We're here with Patricia Hannaway. Hello, Patty.
1: Hello. Nice to be here.
0: It's great to uh, it's great to have you. Um, and uh, you know, art's been central to your life. And I'm thinking, you know, where where did it come from? Did you know that? You know, art was going to be something when you were a little kid?
1: I always drew when I was a little kid, uh, and it ended up really becoming a significant part of my life. Uh, my art classes were always some of my favorite classes, along with English and sure. uh, all those types of things. So, so
0: as a kid, then, um, I mean, were you drawing on the walls? What were you doing?
1: <laughs> I was actually drawing in notebooks, I would take um, photographs from magazines and I would do different portraits and things mm-hmm. and so I was always kind of a quiet kid yeah. and I would kind of sit in the corner and do my drawings if there were things yeah. that the adults were talking about while I was Good. little. So, so you
0: would walk around, you'd have the your little sketchbook with you.
1: Yes, pretty much. How,
0: how old were you? or young were you when uh, you started? I would this?
1: say about three or four. I mean, three I was, or four. Yeah, I was really sketching early. I was always carrying a pencil around with a, you know, a Barbie tucked under my arm. Now you Guess didn't what?
0: go. <laughs> <that's> <laughs> funny. You didn't go to the store, I presume, at the age of three to buy the sketchbook. Your no, parents? No, no, no. My parents so did. They saw this. How did they? I mean, they knew obviously. How did they know?
1: Well, they just thought, "Oh my goodness, I hope she'll grow out of this." <laughs>
0: <laughs> but they got you. Um they just got they, they just got you something or kids start to draw, and they say she likes to draw. yeah, her she sketchbook.
1: she likes to draw, she loves to color um, you know, something's going on here. And I always like to work with my hands, too. So as I got older, I was always making things with my hands. And my sister's very creative as well. So Mm. the two of us, she's four years older than I am. So the two of us were always plotting some artistic (laughs) endeavor.
0: Were your parents in creative fields?
1: Uh, No, not really. My father uh, is a retired dentist and my mother is uh, an accountant.
0: An accountant wouldn't be the most creative field we're talking about. In fact, creative no. accounting gets you in trouble. So
1: Yes, indeed, <laughs> indeed. But I have to say my mother was always particularly good at matching colors. and So I think she might have been a closet creative. It just was yeah. never really developed.
0: Do you ever think about why this creative talent came to you, and I guess your sister as well, when you're – Parents, they—I mean—they had a creative aspect to them, but their careers certainly were not in a creative field.
1: Well, also, my um, my parents were second-generation mm-hmm. immigrants. So, mm-hmm. both of my grandparents, um, from my father's side, were from Ireland, uh, and from my mother's side, from Poland. So, they were. My parents were also. Uh, children of the depression mm. so they were always drilled in to have a very kind of conservative outlook make sure you can make a living the creative right. stuff is fine but yeah. you got to pay the bills yeah. and
0: so that'd be it. interesting to talk about you know kind of how you manage your career as you got a little bit a little bit older right um, um but i'm i always wonder about it like where does it come from when somebody has and and, and any creative? It could be a writer. Right. In your case, it's it's an artist, an animator. Let's say an artist. Um, where uh, where does it come from? And you know you know the story about the ten thousand hours. You, you hear that research.
1: I do hear that research, and I I sort of agree with it. Oh. But I also think that you you need to have. You need to have some inherent interest and skill
0: yeah. to well, kind of keep going. The, you wouldn't last the 10,000 hours if you didn't Absolutely care about
1: Absolutely you would not. And yeah. I come to find out that my father's side of the family from Ireland, they were actually a bunch of boat builders. Ah. So they did kind of fine woodworking and boat building. So yeah. I'm thinking that that might have something to do some with Some genetic it. component, perhaps. Indeed. And also uh, they were voracious readers, so... So I'm thinking somewhere along the way, I think it got mixed in genetically. Got it. Got it. <laughs> and
0: so your parents were, as you said, children of the Depression, um, which would make them more conservative and understanding that you got to be able to make a living. But even as a kid, they did encourage your your art. Um, how, uh, do you remember that in particular, or was just they gave you a set sketchbook and off and running you in?
1: Well, I think they didn't quite understand it. Um, and my parents were also avid golfers, mm-hmm. so for them, golfing uh, and aspiring kind of in sports in an in oh, in, the, in athletic way was uh-huh. very important. Uh-huh. So golf and sports were very important in my family. So I think I was a bit of an outlier with the art. Uh, my sister was an extraordinary golfer, so she was uh, mm. she was at Duke and she was playing on the golf team there wow. with Nancy Lopez and really? a lot of these wonderful golfers, mm. and she was a state champion. And um, I uh, enjoyed golf, but not quite that much. Mm-hmm. So I kind of uh, ended up. I still play. I still enjoy it, but I didn't play competitively. Although I was the only, I was a woman on the men's golf team because uh, they didn't have a women's golf team. You at must have been husband. good enough in any event uh, to compete I with the guys. I was good enough. I was good enough. Yeah. But not, I mean, my sister was extraordinary.
0: But so this emphasis on sports, you still kept going with, with art? Or I mean, is this something you kept doing as a kid or you gave it up and got, came back to it you know, in college? No, say.
1: no, no. I kept I kept up with it. Um, I think that my parents didn't quite understand it yeah. because they sort of you know they said look accounting business go to medical school <laughs> they were you know they're very conservative New England parents mm-hmm. um, and so the art was always kind of pushed to the side but I kind of knew inside myself that this was something that was going to resonate in my life
0: yeah so how did you um, how did you manage this uh, kind of conflict with parents <sighs> wanting something and you just this was in you. You you had to do something about this. This is the, the art.
1: I had to find some way to combine uh, creativity with a more practical yeah. venue. Yeah. So I think when I went to college, it really became economics or business with a creative field, or something like medicine with some kind of a creative component to it. Mm-hmm. Um, so that really became. The way I went. Uh, so I majored in economics and art in college, uh, and when I graduated from college, I was an investment banker. Well, I well, well, what... One
0: minute, the investment banker,
1: <laughs> indeed.
0: Uh, not too um, many people would have anticipated that. How'd that happen?
1: Well, my sister was uh, when she graduated from college. She went to Solomon Brothers, and that's where she met her husband. Uh-huh. Uh, and so as the second child, I have three siblings. I have a younger brother as well. You know, you look to your elder sister as kind of being the superstar. Uh-huh. So I thought, oh, well, what all good New England uh, college students are supposed to do or be practical and go to Wall Street. So mm-hmm. I ended up working for First Boston. and um, For a couple of years. For a couple of years, yeah. And yeah. so I used to do savings and loan bailouts. Oh, boy. Uh, we were doing mortgage backed securities at that time. You're not
0: responsible for that financial crisis, right? No, no, You were no. long I, into I, a different I'm, career by 2008. Yeah,
1: absolutely. And also, when we were packaging the mortgage backed securities, we were really trying to help out the savings and loans. And the mortgages that we were using were all AAA. So they were AAA. Pools. How many
0: artists could talk the way you're talking right now?
1: <laughs> it's, well, I, I remember when I started there, I didn't know that uh, a bond was a debt obligation. So when I actually found out two weeks in, I thought, "Oh my goodness! I understand the difference between a stock and a bond. A bond is a debt obligation." That's so funny. I was very excited.
0: Yeah. So um, the
1: world was clear at that moment.
0: So w- one thing you said is, you know, the older sister was uh, kind of the the, the leader. There was one you looked up to, and
1: absolutely. Uh,
0: so she went that way, and that would be a natural thing for you to do.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. So so she really was a, a guide uh, in a lot of ways, and my family were very close. Um, but even while I was on Wall Street working seven days a week, when I, if I managed to get out early some evening, you would find me over, the, over at the Art Students League or the National Academy of Design in New York mm. taking figure drawing classes or figure painting classes. Or if I had a Saturday morning, they used to have these open drawing classes. And I would go and just draw. So even though I was still doing this Wall Street thing, I still felt that... Um, you know, I had to do this creative work. And I also felt that I was different than a lot of people I was working with. For mm-hmm. instance, we would we did a, a, a large a large mortgage-backed deal, and I remember I, I worked across the street at Liberty Street, across the street from Two World Trade Center, mm. and we went to Windows on the World to celebrate the deal. Which
0: was the big kind of revolving restaurant at the top. Right?
1: Absolutely, at Two World Trade. So I was right across the street, Uh, And we would go upstairs, and all the guys would be talking about all the money and the deals and how great it was. And I'd be kind of quiet. And then someone would say, Hey, Pat, what are you thinking about? And I said, Do you ever wonder why you don't see baby pigeons on the street? Like, where are the baby pigeons? You only see grown pigeons, not (laughs) baby pigeons. And I was looking out the window, and I could see a pigeon nest. And, and they just kind of looked at me and said, yeah, well, clearly she's a little touched. Yeah. But. <laughs> so so I was always thinking a little differently.
0: Yeah. I mean, that what you just described is grants for being an academic, actually, just asking <laughs> crazy questions that other people are looking yeah. and saying, what's wrong with this person? <laughs> yeah.
1: Or, you know, meeting like the president of Dole or something and saying, so do you like pineapples?
0: <laughs> is that um, what you said?
1: Yeah. Do you like pineapples? Do you like... What did he say? Uh, he said he did like pineapples, that's and good. apparently there were three different types of pineapples. Uh-huh. And then I got into bananas, and he said genetically there is only like there are only one or two types of bananas now. So I thought, okay, well that's interesting. Meanwhile, everyone else was talking about business. And I, thought, I was interested. In Do the you bananas. think this
0: is a side note? you think this was the CEO of Dole? Oh, I think so. You? Yeah. Did you think that? he appreciated your curiosity about his core products or he thought you were, who is this crazy person? Let's get on with the deal.
1: No, I think, I think he thought, Oh my goodness, this is a kind of an interesting person. They're not interested in just my money or my uh, title. They're uh actually really interested in what the company does. And I think they find it. I I think you find it kind of refreshing. I I bet that's, I bet that's true. Um, Everyone else was like, don't say that. I can't believe you said that. I thought, well, it's a good question. I want to know. Inquiring minds. Inquiring minds. Uh,
0: your boss or bosses in um, your banking career, uh, what type of feedback or interactions did you have with them? Did they, did they see that you kind of had something else going on or, or or what?
1: Well, what was really interesting at the time, so this was, what, 1985, 1986, mm-hmm. so there were three other uh, kind of corporate finance uh, analysts that came in, mm-hmm. and they were all men, mm-hmm. and we all shared a secretary, and so the secretary would always do their work first because she figured, "Oh, but well, you 're a woman, you understand." Mm-hmm. And I would say, "No, no, no, you can 't do that. Mm-hmm. You have to do my work too, uh, in in the correct order so at the time, i didn 't realize it, but I think being a woman in the field was mm-hmm. fairly unique. Yep. And I would always, I never wanted to dress up like the the guys, like someone would wear pinstripes and try and blend in, and I would wear a white suit with big scarves, and I, I wanted to still be a woman.
0: Yeah, I remember the, uh, um, I think it was around that time, and, and maybe a bit earlier too, that women, say in business school or in business, would wear suits uh, with kind of the big, like a big tie or, or scarf or whatever, of course. and it was as equivalent, And it was a skirt; it wasn't pants. Uh, but other than that, it was very similar. I mean, there were a few fl- flourishes, but very similar. Oh uh, yeah. And I, don't, I, I, I think that's long gone. But you, you in the era when that was not long gone, but the dominant right. way, you, you didn't.
1: Right. And I would wear. I would wear different types of suits. I would. I still wanted to be very much a woman, and I yep. wanted to be different. Um, and, and allow that to happen. Sure. And it would be difficult because sometimes I would have to go down to the stock exchange and get quotes on a deal. And I, I would ask there was a, a bunch of men on the stock exchange, and I would say, hey, I need to get the quote. No one would pay attention mm-hmm. to me. And it wasn't until I would kind of stop my foot mm-hmm. or really speak loudly that, that someone would say, oh, you want something? So I yeah. actually found being a little bit different was kind of a help
0: It was a help because um,
1: it it got you noticed. Yeah. Because otherwise, as a woman, you were kind of invisible anyway. So you Mm. needed to find a way to distinguish yourself a little bit.
0: I I mean, imagine a whole generation, multiple generations of people of women—small numbers to be sure, but still uh, Mm -hmm. uh, some—who stayed in that career. Not just that career. I'm sure that law was the same. Academia was no doubt the same. You know, uh, almost every professional field.
1: Indeed, and it's um, at at the time I didn't really think anything of it, Um, but now I look back and I realize, wow, I guess I was a little bit pioneering.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Did you ever feel um, this some degree of discrimination? That's what you're describing, right? Um, Not harassment, but discrimination that you were treated less equal. Uh, than than that your male college. Do you ever feel that even later on um, in say, when you're in the art world, and animation
1: mm-hmm. world? I think I got more sense of it as I got older. Mm-hmm. But at the time, I just wanted to do a good job. Yeah, I wanted I was focused hmm. on um, you know, learning as much as I could, contributing. I was trying to be a team player yeah, yeah. Uh, in this environment. Yeah. Um, and it's not. It's not an easy thing, but I don't think I kind of understood that until a few years ago, actually, hmm. uh, as time has gone on.
0: Uh, so a bunch of uh, um, students, MBA students and other young people, women, are in in financial jobs and all kinds of jobs now, obviously. Uh, and it's a different environment in that it's recognized. There's a lot more discussion about it. There's a Me Too movement, of course. Of course. But there's still lots of discrimination that's going on. I don't know whether you have any any sense or, or, or advice even uh, for a new generation of you know 25- to 35-year-old uh, young women that are very talented, right. that are in these professional fields where they're still dealing with uh, some degree, and some people will say still a significant degree of discrimination.
1: I would have to say when... I mean, after being in the financial world and then ending up at Disney Feature Animation, there were very few woman animators. Mm-hmm. And even when I went into the Disney training program, out of the 12 of us that they took to train uh, in feature animation as trainees, there were really only three of us. Um, three women? Three women. And then along the way, I met a few other women that were producers... Mm-hmm. Uh, that were getting involved and maybe one or two woman animators, I would have to say Brenda Chapman, Jill Colton there were a few people that would come up but it was very it it was unique but Mm. I really was enjoying the work and I just wanted to learn as much as I could Mm -hmm. and I think one of the things that was interesting is in going to Smith. So I went to Smith College, and then I went my junior year to Amherst College. And what was interesting at Smith is, as a woman, you could do anything. Because that's an
0: all-women's college.
1: Right. right, And and you didn't think. You didn't think twice about whether it was a, a male career or a female career. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that's one of the nice parts of yeah. a women's college, mm-hmm. that I think you don't get a sense that you that this is a male thing or a female thing. You yeah. do what interests you. And I think over time that really helped cultivate my ability to go out and do things that were supposedly more, maybe more male-oriented, but I just didn't think of it that way.
0: Yeah, yeah. I, w- I want to go back to the two years in investment banking and how you transitioned out of that, and especially your supervisors, your bosses. Um, how did they treat you? Did they expect you to stay? Did they want you to stay? Did they um, right. support did they support you? Do they think you are already a little bit, you know, a little bit out there because you're talking about pigeons <laughs> And, and pineapples when everyone else is talking about money?
1: <laughs> Pigeons and pineapples, that's very <laughs> funny. Um, you know, I really worked hard to just be part of the gang. I mm-hmm. worked I worked hard to kind of prove that I could do everything that my male counterparts could do. Yep. Um, and I felt that... At at that point, maybe I didn't have the perspective, but I felt overall like I was doing the same level of work Mm -hmm. uh, as my counterparts. So there might have been some of that going on, but beyond the occasional occurrence, I really didn't have a sense of that, except that there just were not other women around. Or the other women were secretaries or production assistants.
0: So after the two years there, Uh why did you leave?
1: I had this feeling that life is, again, getting into the philosophy part of Mm. things, that our time here is measured. And it's very important to do things in your life that you enjoy Mm. uh, and that you feel like you're using your potential in the the most positive way to give back. Mm. And I felt that, yes, I could do this job in business. I could make this money. I was completely proficient at it. But at the end of the day, I felt unfulfilled. Mm-hmm. I felt like there was something else I was meant to do. And I wanted to explore the options of taking this kind of more practical business side and trying to find a way of combining it with the creative side. Mm-hmm. So that in a way, I was filling the desire of my parents, but also yeah. starting to become my own person.
0: And where, because you applied to uh, business school or you were accepted to business school yeah, at was, Kellogg and Northwestern. Yeah, right? I was
1: going to get to Northwestern. Where,
0: where did that fit into here in terms of the time frame and the thinking?
1: Right. Well, typically what happens when you go and you're a corporate analyst, at least on Wall Street uh, in the years I was there, mm-hmm. you were expected to be there for two years and go mm-hmm. to business school. So that was kind of a natural transition. Mm-hmm. Um, and so after I had completed my two years, I was kind of – Looking at the next step, mm-hmm. and my sister was looking at going to business school and all these types of things. So again, my sister was kind of a little bit of a, a leader for me, mm-hmm. uh, and it just so happened that a couple of weeks before I was due to go to business school, and I was packing up my apartment already. Uh, one of my college professors, what happened to be in town, and we had dinner one night. And she said, you know, Pat, you're really an amazing artist. I wish you wouldn't give up so quickly. Mm. And I said, but her name was Susan Heidman. She really had a tremendous influence on me in in drawing and painting. Um, And she said, you know, Andy Warhol is founding this school called the New York Academy of Art. And he is hand-selecting a bunch of traditional teachers to teach anatomy, light and color theory, mural painting, figure sculpture, figure painting, Um, Warhol really felt that artists weren't getting the training that they needed. Mm -hmm. And he felt that he didn't get the more traditional Mm -hmm. training that he needed, the principals. So he was creating the school. And she said, hey, Pat, he's taking 20 students from around the country for this year-long scholarship program. And I think it's going to be wonderful. Why don't you take some time and do it? Um, and I thought, well, if I can get in, that would be lovely. Um, and so I started thinking about that. And then that Sunday morning, I got a call from Andy Warhol.
0: What, 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 say that again?
1: <laughs> yes, I got a call, I got a call from Andy Warhol. And he said, that he, he explained a little bit about the program. And he's like, oh, we would really like you to, to consider being a part of it. Wow. So I went and I saw the school and I thought, wow, this is a real... It's a real school, um, and from there... So
0: Andy Warhol was recruiting you to be a student, one of 20.
1: Yes, one of 20. For his,
0: his inaugural...
1: New um, York Academy of Art, which still exists Art. today.
0: Which still exists today. Okay, uh, we're, we're going to take a short break, and we come back, we're going to dig into this a little bit more. I want to know what Andy Warhol was like and what it was like to be there. We'll be right back with, uh, with Patricia Hannaway. I just wanted to uh, put this out in podcast land. Um, Our podcast is really uh, doing great. The Sidcast has been a lot of fun. And my producer, uh, Ben, is um, uh, unfortunately for me going back to school. Pretty good for him. Uh, But uh, I need uh, need a replacement. So if you're interested in looking to be a uh, producer... Uh, of the Sidcast, then um, then drop us a line at the Sidcast. Go to uh, www.thesidcast.com and uh, drop us a note and uh, why you're interested and what your background is, and uh, we'll see if we can uh, we can be uh, we we can bring you in to as the next uh, as the next producer. We're back with Patricia Hannaway. You left us hanging, Patty. Uh, so Andy Warhol calls. Uh, we, I want you to be one of the these twenty students in this class. Tell, tell, tell us everything about Andy Warhol.
1: <laughs> um, I would like to say he was a good friend, but he really wasn't. I mean, he was really the person who was putting together this program. So he was funding it with uh, a friend of his, Stuart Pivar. Uh, who was also um, and still is quite a big name in the art world. Mm-hmm. If you read the Andy Warhol book, you'll see him quoted quite a number of times. And so they were paying for everything. It was hmm. a complete scholarship. Andy would come into some of our drawing classes. Hmm. Uh, he didn't speak very much. He was kind of quiet, but he had a very public persona, which was... Uh, very showy and people know that but in private what people don't know about him is that he really I mean Andy really was an artist at the end of the day Uh, and I and I got a sense that he was really committed to try and bring Mm -hmm. these traditional skills back and this was kind of his quiet way of doing it in with this New York Academy of Art
0: right you know, he was, uh, as, as you know, I saw the exhibit on Andy Warhol that was at the uh, Whitney Museum in New York uh, right. not that long ago. And um, um, he was certainly criticized a great deal for being too commercial. And, of course, he was commercial. That was part of his art, the famous, you know, Campbell Soup and, and all of the rest. Of course, the uh, Boxes. And I, I don't know whether you, you, you can even answer this, but creating a, a um, rigorous... Um, and fundamental academic program in in the arts or in art uh, is one of the ways to address a criticism that says, I'm not that serious about this. I'm only in it for the money.
1: Right. And I think at the end of the day, I mean, there were times he would talk to us and he would tell us that we were much better draftsmen than he was. Mm. And we were. Mm. Um, He would come into the drawing class and... It was very funny. There would be the streak of white behind you, and sometimes you'd be a little startled, and you'd turn around, and he'd look at you, and he'd be startled. <laughs> He's in you're... his white suit. Yeah. So <laughs> it was just. It was. Um, it 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 was a a little odd at times, but I do believe he had the best intentions. I mean, it wasn't something where he was announcing the New York Academy of Art. I mean, still to this day, not many people know the story about him. Uh, and how important he was with the New York Academy. And so I think to a certain extent he was seeing it kind of a little bit as his real belief in legacy. Yeah. At least that's the way I like to think of sure,
0: it. Sure, sure. And um, by the way, what did your parents say about all this? Because you, 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 oh, you just you just threw away that business school thing.
1: I I wanted to defer, and I remember I was talking to my parents on my phone. On the phone, and I remember one of my parents said, "Good God, Flo, our daughter's going to starve in the gutter," (laughs) and that's really how um, that's really how it it started off. So I ended up doing this, and I was scared to death, uh, like a lot of you know uh, high uh, high achieving students are. I was breaking the mold, Mm -hmm. Um, and in in many ways, uh, you know, living my parents' worst nightmare.
0: But but (laughs) you were you were happy.
1: I was much happier, yeah. It, it's where I belonged, and I always knew that I had the practical stuff to fall back on. I always could go back to business school if that's what I decided. So I, I I, made sure I had options. Right. Yeah, but ops, I, I op, wanted mm. to give things a try, yeah. and, and New York at that time was just the place to do it.
0: Of course, yeah. Um, optionality is a powerful idea. I always advise that to young people as well. Oh, I think yeah. uh, I mean there's no cost really coming up with as many options as you can and fall back it's just it's just a good thing to have if you can do it. Not I, I think more and more people don't do it. They they say, mm-hmm. I want to do this, I'm gonna go forward and you know, hopefully it'll work. And maybe you maybe it should, you know, may, maybe it's the right way to do it. But having these options uh, is helpful. I think Um, it's a security blanket. That's true. You know, now I'm thinking: Well, if I don't have the options and I'm going down this art path, boy, I am all in, and I better make this work. And Mm -hmm. if I have an option or options to do something else, your case is business school. Mm -hmm. For someone else, might be something else. Of course, Uh, maybe you know, maybe somehow psychologically, I'm not going to be quite as all in. I have this safety valve. Mm -hmm. Uh, uh, what, What do you think about that?
1: Well, I think options are wonderful, and then options can be a bit of a curse, too, to be quite honest. Sometimes you have so many options, you don't know where to go. So I think that you have to set one thing as a priority. Mm -hmm. Uh, And for me, the priority was the art. There was no doubt. I was 80% in, uh, and then I had a 20% fallback position. And I think also... Uh, and again, hindsight is twenty twenty, 20 right? I think I was at the time beginning to understand that we live in a multidisciplinary world. Mm. And my take on it was that it was going to become more multidisciplinary.
0: Mm. You actually thought about that at some level? I did. At that time? I did. I yeah. really
1: did. Mm. And, um, and, and so... I thought, hey, look, having this Wall Street background is really great. I understand investing. I understand business side. I can talk to people in the business school on the business side. Uh, I can understand business if I'm setting up a creative business. Mm -hmm. So I really see things not so much as separate components, as things that can complement each other. Yeah. and help serve each other. And I think in today's world, sometimes we think of things too separately. Uh, and people are so complicated. Uh, and I think that if we look at things as, um, you know, s- combinations that we can put together to help mm-hmm. us achieve our goals, I think it helps a lot more. You
0: know, that's what um, innovation really is. It's I think so. It's a recombination so. of different different bits and pieces. It could be, you know, from a technology side. It could Absolute be from, But I in our case, in this example, we're talking about kind of innovating our lives or crafting our lives, as I like to say. And I think actually today, this point about multidisciplinary kind of life, life is that way, is more true than ever before because no one's staying... Not too many people are going to stay in the same job in the same career forever. The world's changing too fast. You've got to keep learning and relearning. And, of course. And you know, all the predictions are... Um, with artificial intelligence and, and robotics and just the pace of change that people are going to have to redefine and recreate themselves multiple times in, uh, in over a over work life.
1: Well, I think also there's a big difference between taking a job and building a life. And I think what became oh. really apparent to me um, fairly early on was that what was going to make me happy was building a life. Hmm. And so in understanding the business side and pursuing my arts, I knew it was going to be a process. Mm -hmm. I didn't expect to just arrive in one place. And I still don't expect to arrive. Even now? Even now, of course. And so it's constant learning, constant combinations. And that's what I really love to share with my students. And they will come into my office and they'll be really upset about why they don't fit into a certain area. You know, my Mm. friend is a doctor, my friend is a lawyer, my friend is a this and a that. And they all have labels and they'll come in and they'll be incredibly depressed that they don't fit in. Mm. And I let the students know that it's an advantage, not a disadvantage. Exactly. exactly. So they come out thinking, Mm -hmm. oh, wow, I do have options. This is wonderful. I can build things in a new way. And so I'm able to really alleviate that fear
0: yeah that's a, as you were saying that I was thinking that's a fantastic lesson, so it's it good is. that that's that's kind of a big part of what you're doing uh, and i would the only thing I would add to it as long as there's a level of excellence of whatever those options are of course, there's no room for you know just being um, um mediocre it doesn't matter what no you have
1: to yet. you have to i guess it goes back to the ten thousand hours, but also really being in touch with your feelings i mean what I find. With a lot of the high-achieving students is that they're afraid of failure, Hmm. Um, so they are very risk-averse, and they don't want to make mistakes, and the thing that happens there is that when you don't make mistakes, you don't learn either, and they're so good at test-taking and jumping through hoops that there's a disconnect between what they feel and their achievement, Hmm. and so... What's interesting in my classes, especially with computer animation, which I teach in computer science and mm. a modeling and computer modeling and all these things, is that I have to slow the students down to really be in the present. And and by doing that, it allows them to slow down and they're, they start feeling what they like. Yeah. And it, it's, a, it's a completely um, surprising thing to me. That they're learning about life, life lessons mm-hmm. in slowing down in computer science and learning to look with animation because they've and had really this
0: pace and uh, Because a, of the pace There's yeah. always something else. There's always something else you gotta do, you gotta accomplish. A lot of a lot of pressure, self imposed sometimes from parents.
1: Absolutely.
0: Yeah. And I
1: understand that because I was very much a part of it. And I had to learn to to find my own way. Yeah
0: imagine what someone can accomplish if they never were afraid of failing I mean it's it's, 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 an, it, it's almost like a secret that's not a secret because people say you shouldn't be afraid of failure and all the rest people say that all the time but to actually embrace it within yourself in a way that you're coaching let's say mm-hmm. um, um, your own students to kind of try to do that it's, uh, it's, a, it's one of these secrets that's, uh, uh, that, that, that's hiding in plain sight it's there for everyone to see
1: It is. And um, Keats, the great poet, I mean, he called it negative capability. Yeah. And it's a process of living with uncertainty and learning to be more comfortable with it. And when you go into life and you embrace that, when things change, you're more resilient You don't think, oh, my gosh, I didn't get this job. My life is over. You Mm -hmm. think, okay, well, that didn't work. How about if I look over to the right or to the left? There were these other things that were going on, other opportunities Mm -hmm. that I wasn't seeing because I was so laser-focused on a certain path.
0: Yeah, yeah. And so
1: I try, and and the kids want stability. They want (laughs) certainty. And I tell them that that's not life. That's not and, and, the and what's way gonna, it works.
0: Exactly. What's going to happen is that that's not. They're not going to get that. Uh, well, there's always exceptions, but the vast majority are not going to get that kind no. of certainty and stability, no matter what they wish. So they might as well recognize that's what it is and try to train yourself and develop your confidence and your skills. Resiliency. Resilience, yeah. And
1: and feeling mm. what you really enjoy and find ways of combining it in new ways. Yeah. And so when I taught at Stanford, it was the same thing with those kids. I same was thing. trying to help them uh, realize that life is multidisciplinary. Build a life. Don't just take a job. Yeah, Build your life. And it takes time. It isn't the first job out of the gate. It takes time. You evolve it. Again, it's process-oriented instead of, uh, you know, final goal-oriented. Um, and so that's why you see things. When you see things as a process, you can play. When you're at a final desti- destination, it's like an end. Mm. It kind of kills the growth in a lot of ways. Yeah, And that's why a lot of people, I think a lot of my friends, when I go back for our reunions both at Amherst and at Smith, I mean, I see... Friends of mine who were tremendous composers or writers and they're working for these companies doing what they're supposed to do, mm-hmm. and I will look at them and say, well, what about your you know, your opera composition? Do you do that? And, oh, no, I gave that up. Why did you give that up? Mm-hmm. You're phenomenal at it. Do you still write? You should be writing. Mm-hmm. You should. And so slowly over time, people kind of look at me and say, well, you know, you're right, Pat. I am going to start writing more. I am going to start getting back to that. I'm going to start... And so I'm always happy when I kind of restart something that they kind of forgot about. Yeah, But I think it's still kind of their true selves. I the, think yeah. they just get away. I, yeah. I guess I'm just like... Why aren't you doing that? And then they mm-hmm. kind of think, "Why am I not doing that?" And yeah. it becomes a
0: you're the uh, you're the conscience that they uh, that they need
1: apparently. But I do but know. you know
0: what you do you do see because I think you're exactly I mean you're exactly right. Um, and I'm kind of just listening to you. I'm hoping people are listening and embracing these lessons. They're they're simple and they're complex at the same time. And what I find is a lot of people once they're retiring, mm-hmm. they say, "Okay, now I'm finally going to do what I've always wanted to do." And, boy, that, that's a shame, isn't it?
1: I think it's, I think it's a shame. I mean, better um, late than
0: never, I'm going to say that. But indeed. But why, why Why go through 35 years of career, whatever the number is, doing and, and following that line, and, right. and, then, and then you can really do what you want finally when you're 60 or 55 or 65
1: or whatever it is. Um, yeah. It just makes some sense to me to be... It's, it, to be moving in that direction through your whole life, it, it doesn't mean that you're, you're on that perfect road the whole time. But I think when you have a sense of what your priorities and what your yeah. likes are, again, it becomes part of the process that you work towards. Right,
0: right. And you also said when you think about it and, and, and operate as if your life is a process, which it is, you can play.
1: You can play. You can try new things. And you're not so hard on yourself.
0: Yeah. That's what playing is, right?
1: Uh, look, I, I think so. And so I, I find it really funny. Um, you know, Stanford. Mm-hmm. At Stanford, we had all the buzzwords of innovation and teaching innovation and mm-hmm. all these kind of things. And I'm thinking to myself... I think what I'm talking about is really the foundation of innovation. Yes, I think and, so. And if you are trying to teach a course in innovation, it should probably be a psychology course because <laughs> it's really this process, I think, of what I'm talking about. Yeah. And But everyone's got the catchphrases and the little tracks that people follow. Mm-hmm. And it was interesting. I was talking to um, – some some friends of mine at the Stanford Business School, and they were saying, yeah, well, you know, now we're getting a lot more STEM kids into our business program. And the issue we're having is that we have to change the curriculum mm-hmm. because the STEM kids want a particular answer. Mm-hmm. They're thinking linearly, mm-hmm. and what we have to do is we have to create a new series of courses that help them think more creatively. Wow. And more innovative in a more innovative way. Yeah. And um, you know, back when I was I was in school, probably the majority of the kids that were coming into business schools were more of the liberal arts students, which actually true. have more of this process orientation built into
0: yeah, it. It's it's true.
1: And then I think when you have STEM kids that are used to problem sets, direct lines, a specific answer, you really need to shake them up and change a whole psychology of the way they are viewing things that's
0: a, that's in order a re- to
1: be creative.
0: It's really interesting because, as you know, there's this big emphasis on STEM and America's falling of behind. Course. We don't have enough engineers. All might be true, but our solution is may actually lead to less innovation based on how you're describing it than if more can, innovation.
1: If you create a risk-averse group of students and then you have them running... In a, in a linear way for one particular answer, mm-hmm. how can that possibly foster innovation? Mm. You need to have... Stu- now, uh, and when I'm saying this, I'm not talking about being irresponsible in any way. Mm-hmm. I mean, I am... I can program, do mathematics, and, uh, but, you know, understand business stuff, uh, as well as being creative and an artist. I don't think... This implies a lack of responsibility mm. on behalf of anyone, but I think when you are process-oriented, you see this as all part of building your life.
0: So I have, I have two things I want to say about this. One is more of a statement, which is um, an extension perhaps of what you're saying. We talk about professionalism and people have to have a profession. And what I'm getting from what you're, uh, what you're saying is uh, that actually might be better to, to be an amateur. Because an amateur can make a mistake. An amateur is always learning. An amateur never masters the material because it's not about mastering the material. It's about continually not just learning but asking new questions that take you beyond what the kind of the material, the core material is. And, and, and that's pretty consistent, I think, with a lot of what you're, you're saying. Uh, Yo, well, but, it, but inconsistent yes. with how we think about life. People should be professions, right. professionals, uh, and maybe well, that's a mistake. Pigeon,
1: they get pigeonholed. That's
0: the label thing you're talking about. You know, it's the
1: label thing you're talking about, and it, it was really interesting. So when I was at Pixar one day, so Steve Jobs, I mean, I didn't know Steve well, but being in Silicon Valley, um, you know, I mean, he, he was a rat, and hmm. Uh Apple used to have these shirts back in the day that would say 90 hours a week and loving it. And I remember once at Pixar, we got a bunch of those shirts. Someone got a copy and, and made a, a bunch of versions of these shirts. And I crossed mine out and I said, 40 hours a week and loving it. <laughs> uh, and I remember walking down the hall and I walked by Steve Jobs and he looked and was like, mm. and he walked. And then one day I was sitting in this pizza kitchen downstairs and I was kind of having a kind of having a tough day and Steve Jobs came by and he kind of sat down and he, and he was kind of unusual I thought wow he's actually kind of talked to me I yeah. mean he see me around but mm. and 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 he just kind of looked at me he's like you look a little down and I said, I just can't figure it out, Steve. I just, I, I really can't figure it out. It's like, I don't belong anywhere. Yeah. You know, I'm teaching, I'll do some teaching over at Stanford, and I'm running it between, like, the art department and the computer science building. And, you know, I'm working with tech people and I'm working with art people. And it's like everyone wants a label. You know, either you're a technical person or you're an artistic person or this. And I said, and I'm stuck in the middle. Mm. And I looked at him and he said, Pat, that's the best place to be. That's where possibilities happen. Mm. And I never forgot that. And I tell my students that too because, again, maybe that was part of his understanding as well that it was – you know, bringing the things together in new ways, which is really what it was all about. Right. right and so right. again, on B notes to me, I'm like, I'm just trying to find my way through this. But maybe that maybe that was really important.
0: That's where the possibilities are all the possibilities are. That's where all the possibilities are. the question that I had is uh, about left side Left side, left brain, right brain, and the, a lot of people talk about they're di- they're different. Well, they are different, but they're different, and that one is more more creative side, and the visual side, and the other one is the more analytical side. And it Sounds like you're. I, I, well, are are you disputing that, or are you saying well, there's a way of combining them, uh, or don't let that handicap you? Uh, maybe that's really what it is. Don't let that. Don't let the reality of how our brains evolved to handicap you. You want to be in that in the
1: center of things. I think the way I think about it is this, and I, and I look at this with students as well. Some people learn in a very step-by-step way. Some people learn visually. And I think I am a visual learner. Mm. Now, being a visual learner, whether that's right brain or left brain, I don't know, it doesn't mean that I'm not good at math it doesn't mean I can't program. It doesn't mean I can't do business. It just means that you've got to teach me in a way that resonates. Mm -hmm. And I think what happened early on, and I see this happening in grade schools, where things are taught in a really linear way. Well, if you have a student who sees things in a very graphic way, the minute you show me a graph and you relate it to a mathematical formula and then I change something in the formula and I see the graph change, mm. everything opens up for me.
0: Mm.
1: But if you're just dealing with that abstract formula and you don't translate it to the graphic, then I, it takes me longer to get it. Mm-hmm. And I think where computer graphics became so uh, important for me is I could do that all the time. When I was learning basic computer graphics, we didn't have all the wonderful pull-down menus and programs that we have today. And I didn't realize that I was involved in helping create those. We had to develop those things from scratch. And the nature of the computer science back then, in order to make art, you had to understand the programming. You have to understand that the medium of the computer graphics is zeros and ones. Hmm. So it's not oil paint, it's zeros and ones. So again, I embraced that. And I see it just as another medium in the process. And so I was able to relate the graphic imagery to the numbers. And when that happened, everything clicked. We're
0: going to take another short break. And when we come back, um, I want to ask you what it was like to work uh, at, uh, at Pixar and to work on some of these famous movies. And, and I think you also met President Obama, which would be kind of interesting to throw that one in as well. So we'll be, uh, we'll be right back with Patricia Hanaway. If you like what you're listening to, take a look at the Sidcast, tell your friends about it, t- uh, tell everyone you can. We want subscribers, we want to know who you are. Uh, write to us if you go to thesidcast.com and click on contact and we'd love to hear what you think. Back with Patricia Hanaway. Patricia, you worked for Disney, you worked on Toy Story, you worked on all these amazing famous movies that everyone knows. What was that, what was that like?
1: Well, it was very interesting. After I had uh, finished the New York Academy of Art, uh, the sense from my parents uh, kind of came back where you better make sure you're practical. So I enrolled at the School of Visual Arts in their computer art program, uh, which was very new at the time. We were combining technology and art, and I thought, ooh, there's a kind of practical way to do it too. Mm -hmm. So at one point I was doing the New York Academy of Art, as I became fully accredited as a master's program and doing the master's program in computer graphics at the School of Visual Arts. So it was, they were three years that were interesting and three years that were incredibly difficult and time consuming. Yeah. So um, so I, I had two masters, one in traditional art and one in computer art from SVA. And I kept thinking, who in the world is gonna want someone like me? I mean, a philosopher, anatomist, draftsman, painter, uh, computer animator, computer scientist, reader, I mean, you name mm-hmm. it. And and what was wonderful is Walt Disney Feature Animation did. How did uh, they
0: find you? Actually, how did you through find that,
1: the, well, no, so it was through the School of Visual Arts, and I've sent some of my Dharma students there. Um uh, in this in this program, where the Disney feature would come and do recruiting, and they would have portfolio Got review it. days, and so they would talk to different professors and kind of get a sense of, gee, who should we grab? And I guess I was on one of the lists. Yeah,
0: yeah. So it sounds like you'd have exactly the right background for. For this type of job. Who knew? Who knew? And so you walk in, you show up, you put on a team working on...
1: Well, no. What happened is you had a, it was a training program. It was called the Disney Internship Training uh-huh. Program. And every year there would be, you know, thousands of applicants and it would take 12 of us. So it was pretty stiff competition. Mm-hmm. So the first time I applied, I didn't get in. And the recruiter kept telling me what I needed to work on. So over the course of that next year, I just worked my tail off. Mm -hmm. And then I was the top recruit the following year. So it just goes to show you that don't take no for an answer. (laughs)
0: Yep. Yep. And
1: so then, so I was in the training program for three months, and they test you in all different areas, in background, in visual effects, which are things like explosions and uh, they test you in animation, they test you in different types of drawing, different types of layout, and they basically were able to kind of determine where your skill was. Mm-hmm. So they wanted you to have the basic skill on the art side, and then they would determine where your talent within that yeah. realm was mm-hmm. and then what they would do is put you on that track to develop it. Got it. So I was one of the people that tested for animation. Mm-hmm. Uh and they said, "Ooh, we've got one. She she can act, she can draw, mm-hmm. she can all right uh, grab it." So yeah. So that, that kind of led me down the track uh, of training as an animator at Disney. So I trained for three years, and then I was put on. My first film was Mulan, and it was incredible. Sorry, because
0: you trained for three years?
1: No, three three months. Three months. Yeah, <laughs> I three was three thinking, months. wow, this so is unbelievably for, Yeah, Yeah, so I trained for three months, and then what Disney would do is they would put you under a mentor yeah. in your department, and it was incredible because the mentors were your – we the superstars in the company. Ah. So Disney had a sense that you invest in people, you put them under the best people, yeah. and then you, in, you train them up. Mm-hmm. And it can take five to seven years to make an animator. Mm-hmm. So you'd start with things like, you know, animating feet, animating here, and then over time as you developed, you got better, you'd take on more and more responsibility, mm-hmm. and you'd keep testing along the way until eventually maybe you you would become a senior animator or what they call a supervising animator over time. But it was not a fast process. Mm -hmm. I mean, there was a sense, this is a craft. Yep. Yep. And it's a love of craft. So I started out traditionally, and then Disney started wanting to incorporate more computer graphics into, or computer animation into the traditional films. Things like the Wildebeest Stampede on The Lion King. I worked on The Hun Charge on Mulan. So these are all computer graphics things, computer animation things that were actually being implemented into the 2D films. Is,
0: is, it, is everything computer graphics now? Or is there still traditional drawing <laughs> and animation?
1: It takes too long to try up a traditional artist I mean five to seven years now you have kids coming out of school with let's say they're animators in two years in a computer program yeah and and that's just not really what it takes to be an animator to be a real character animator that can animate and act and bring these characters to life
0: mm-hmm.
1: it's so much more than just technical Is I mean, computer
0: graphics uh, animation if you can call that is that superior to the old-fashioned way,
1: I don't think I don't think of it as superior or not superior. I think of it as being different. Mm-hmm. To me, the computer is just a medium. Yeah. It's it's like an oil painting medium, or uh, you know, in this case, an electrical medium. You learn the medium, but the principles stay the same. Mm-hmm. So there were things I adore about traditional animation, and I'm so glad I was at the tail end of Disney's golden age. Yeah. of animation, mm-hmm. and I'm so glad I trained that way. Yeah. Um, and these draftsmen were just the Michelangelos of their day. Mm. I mean, they really, and and now we're all older, so there's been some talk of maybe Lasseter, well, not Lasseter anymore, but people wanting to make a traditional film, and it's like, well, hey, if you want to make a traditional hand, hand-drawn film, you better do it fast because, because we're getting are, older yeah. uh, and you can't – these kids coming out of school are not trained to do it. It's right. going to take years to train up with that skill set.
0: Isn't that interesting traditional animation, oh, yeah. it's, it's, it's going to disappear because people are not being trained for it.
1: That's right. Yeah, they're not being trained for it.
0: Yeah. So go back to you said you were in Mulan, and, and I mentioned so Toy Story. What, what was that? So what what is it like? I mean, you work with who do you work with? Well, happen? it
1: was it was wonderful. I was based in the Orlando studio. So Disney had three studios. They had one in Paris, one in Orlando, and one in, and one in Burbank. And now the Orlando and the Paris studio are closed. Disney consolidated mm-hmm. into Burbank. Um, But back in the day, we had these separate studios. And what was wonderful about being in one of the satellite studios is that there were maybe about 150 people. It was a small team. So you got to know everybody. Mm -hmm. And if you had something you wanted to say to the director or something about the story wasn't working, you could go across the hall and talk to those people. In Burbank, there's a lot of middle management. It's large. You mm-hmm. don't have that access. Mm-hmm. But when you're a smaller satellite studio, you're all kind of working together. Mm-hmm. You're in your, It's it's a little tight group.
0: Maybe a better place to learn when you're younger. I
1: think it's a better place to learn, and I think Milan is really a testament to the quality mm. that was at that Orlando studio. Yeah. Um, they gave us Milan because they thought, oh, well, we're going to take Hercules, we're going to take the big films, but... With Milan, we'll give them this, this film. We don't think anything's going to happen. And they didn't look at us for a long time. Beware the underdog. We ended up turning it into something really special. Yeah, wow. And so we took it. We made it ours. Mm. And, and then what was interesting about Milan is I ended up giving a lot of story notes. And the story really resonated with me because it felt like Milan, she would suit up. To take the place of her ill father, mm. and oftentimes in the corporate world, mm-hmm. I felt very out of place, like I had to suit up. Yeah. So in a way, it became a little bit of a a metaphor for the way I felt.
0: Interesting. I wonder if that's one Lord of the Lord Lord. reasons it appealed to so many people, and especially to women and girls, because we may have well, felt we that. Well, we
1: fought. We fought. I mean, Eisner wanted to have that's Michael Eisner, right? And he wanted to have. You know, kisses at the end and, uh, you know, riding off in the sunset. And I was like, no, 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 no. Shang, who was the uh, the male character who kind of headed up Milan's troop, I said, no, Shang has to earn Milan. He has to earn. You were her. arguing with
0: the CEO of Disney about this?
1: Yes. Yes. <laughs> I was very naive at the time. Uh, and, and yes I would and because we were in Orlando and Burbank wasn't looking at us the spotlight wasn't on us we really made it our own and we were very passionate about it yeah. and I think, that the, I think that Milan really was the last kind of large scale I don't know almost kind of like a David Leanish kind of film mm-hmm. that Disney did I think mm-hmm. after that they became kind of yeah. smaller um, films
0: what did Eisner say? Was that you and a bunch of people, or was it you telling, you know, the CEO, you can't do that. That's wrong. You can't do that. It's not. He's got. He's got to earn it.
1: Well, I would. I would. I would write a series of notes. Yeah. uh And say no. Mulan would not do that. That is not who the character. You, is. Sorry, you
0: said Mulan would not. Not should not.
1: No, would not do that. Would
0: not is a stronger word.
1: Yes, and well, the thing is, back in the day when we were making those films the sense of the craft and knowing your characters and developing them really as fully as you could was part of the training uh, as an animator. Mm -hmm. You had to realize the character. So if I Mm -hmm. took Milan, I dropped her in, you know, the middle of uh, Union Square in San Francisco in 2019, I would know exactly how she would react. Mm. And we would have these incredible lectures and on anatomy and facial structure and the way a woman with armor would ride a horse versus the way a man with armor would ride a horse. Mm -hmm. People didn't realize we would have these comparative anatomy lectures. We would draw for hours. Uh, People that were working on the falcon, we would go and we would draw the falcon. We would go draw lizards for Mushu. We would go have... um, know, we would send people to China to learn about things during that particular dynasty. Hmm. So back in the day, there was that kind of attention, intense attention to these films uh, and how they were made and a certain level of uh, authenticity and really character-based work. Nowadays, the films are so fast. They're almost like video games. Hmm. Um, And that's where things like Toy Story and other things came in because while I while we finished up on Milan and we were rolling on to some of the other films, Toy Story was kind of, was being developed. The
0: original, the first one.
1: The first one, and they call it Black Friday. It was the day that John Lasseter brought the what we call the story reels for Toy Story over to the story team, and all of us looked at the the reels, and at that time Woody was just such a. He, he was just an irredeemable character. <laughs> he was so mean that he was mean to all the toys. And basically, at that point, the foot was put down that we're going to stop production on this film. We have to rewrite the whole thing, re-storyboard the whole film, and get this thing to work. And the, to this day, Lasseter calls it Black Friday because that was a day that it was like, no, this doesn't work. This is going to stop right now. We've got to turn this around. Yeah. So, so you know, people always say Disney or Pixar, but uh, there's a lot of overlap.
0: Yeah,
1: I mean, a lot yeah. of us from Disney were at Pixar. Right, right. So, uh,
0: w- one thing I'm um, one thing I wonder about is the, the relationship between you and computer graphics and animation, and say the voice actors. Um, you know, I think about Eddie Murphy as the donkey. You
1: know. Oh, I worked with him twice, you both did? with Mushu and then as the donkey. Uh, and I and Shrek. Right, and so I was this. I animated the dog. So what kind of interaction if any
0: is there between well you and Eddie Murphy or just in general people doing your job and right. the and the voice actors.
1: So uh, on my side we're developing the character for the film. The directors are the ones who are actually selecting the voice actors okay. that are going to mm-hmm. to create the voices for the animated mm-hmm. characters. So I wasn't in Uh, a lot of the taping sessions with Eddie Murphy or some of the actors. I mean, I was in one with Cameron Diaz, um, and I've I've been in a few, but normally that's kind of handled by the directors. And so what happens is they do multiple recordings of different lines, from the film, and then what happens is those var- one variation is selected mm-hmm. and then that is actually given to me to animate as part of a scene. But the thing is that the actor is voicing in front of a microphone, so they're not necessarily acting. They might be doing little head tilts or kind of unique mm-hmm. qualities, uh, of acting that I pick up on when I'm looking at the videotape. And I may or may not incorporate that into the animated character. But actually, as a character animator, which is what I am, I'm an actor. I act through the computer or the pencil. I'm actually the one doing the acting. So I would get the voice. I would record it. Then I would go into a mirrored room, and I would act out with that voice.
0: You would, like physically?
1: Physically act it out. So it's my physical acting. And then based on that, I would show it to the director, and the director would be like, I like this, I don't like this, mm-hmm. I like this. And then based on that direction, I would create the animation for the character.
0: So these, anim- these animated characters, they are human in, in the sense that there's a story, but they're human at a whole other level, which is they're an embodiment of you and other animators and, 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 and as creating these characters.
1: Oh, absolutely. And when um, I remember showing to Cameron Diaz some of the early tests for Princess Fiona, which I did not do a lot of Princess Fiona. in oh, Shrek again. Right, in Shrek. And I remember her thinking, oh, my gosh, this is so weird. And I, and I just said, well, well, why? She said, because it's my voice, but it's not me. Huh. And it's not my acting. It's like a long-lost cousin. And that's very much the way it is. I think it's a strange disembodiment for the actors. Mm-hmm. And sometimes I might see something in the videotape or in a recording, the way they tilt their head, and I might say, hey, that will work with the character
0: yeah.
1: or not, and so I'll make that choice right. whether to put it in. So really people don't realize that the character animator, the acting animator, is really the one creating... The performance at the end of the day. They make a big deal about the voices, which is certainly part of it, but the acting itself usually isn't the actor who does the voice. It's the animator behind it that is. Yeah,
0: that's very interesting. And Goll-
1: Gollum is another example. I mean, Gollum is, then? well, I was called into, I was, I was teaching at Stanford at the time, and I got this call from a friend of mine, he said, hey, Peter Jackson's doing the Lord of the Ring, these Lord of the Rings films. He's having a lot of trouble with Gollum. And I loved the Lord of the Rings as a kid growing up. I mean, I, I enjoy fantasy stories very much as long as they're well-written. So they said, you know, Peter's really trying to find really skilled animators mm. to take a look at this and see if they could figure out the problem and i said oh well that's interesting and i was thinking ooh i want to go to new zealand i'll go to new zealand and then i'll pop over to sydney and it'll be great um and so i i ended up talking to Weta digital in new zealand and they said yeah would well, really will you come down and take a look at this character and i said okay
0: if i have to yeah if
1: i have to twist my arm so i got on the plane uh and got down there and was met by this kiwi in the airport in the dead of winter, wearing short pants and sandals. Because it was their summer. No, no, no. Was, it was, was their winter. winter. Let's just say the New Zealanders are a hearty folk. Yes. Uh, and I was bundled up, and uh, and then I went over and I, uh, I I met Peter Jackson, and he, we were in mm. the screen, screening room. And we were looking at some takes for Gollum. So they were just starting the two towers. And he showed me, and, and Gollum was very robotic. He was moving like a mannequin. Yeah. And this is pretty amazing because Peter Jackson basically said, we've got a problem here. Do you know how to fix it? Which was pretty astounding when you think of it because it, I mm. can't ima- I can't remember a director ever actually admitting they didn't know yeah. how to fix a problem. Right. And, I, and I looked and I said, I do know how to fix it. And he said, okay, what do you need? I, I said, I need your... I need your lead rigger, who is this great, great guy named Bay Rate. What Um, does
0: he do? uh,
1: He he was actually involved with doing a lot of the technical work for Gollum. He did some of the sculpture for Gollum to get him in the computer. You you
0: call him the lead rigger?
1: Yes, we call them lead riggers because they're the people who actually help build the computer characters. Okay, got it. And so I said, all right, I'm going to need to rebuild some of the facial stuff. I need to go through this process. I need a couple of days. Mm -hmm. And then what I did is I worked with Bay, rebuilt some of the, what we call the facial shapes for the vocalizations and expressions. And then I showed my first test to Peter Jackson Mm -hmm. in a process called Dailies, Mm -hmm. which um, is where you sit in with your group of your colleagues and you look at work and evaluate it together uh, and i sh- put up my shot on the big screen and i heard peter jackson go oh, like that and, and and that was the first time that gollum seemed alive uh, to him yeah. and and then it was a process of trying to help him understand what a character animator was and how i have to be involved in the acting uh, of the character to bring it to life, mm-hmm. so it was a real education for him because they wanted to t- they were trying to do it with a process called motion capture, which is where a character wears a suit with sensors a person a real person does yes, yeah. and then what they do is they act things out and then that data is transferred to a skeleton on the computer mm. uh and the process with that is it becomes very mannequin like it 's not alive, so there 's some kind of magic involved mm. in. Doing it, you know, acting it out physically, yeah, right, making right, solid right. choices hmm. about the acting and feeling it and then being able to imbue the character with that. So um, so I ended up spending the next six months in New Zealand. Six just months. Cranking wow. out Gollum shots, yeah, just for the two towers. So the Gollum
0: we see in the big screen or on TV is, uh, it's you, it's yours.
1: Yeah, a lot of it. Wow. I mean, it's a, its always a team effort a team. when people do it. But yes, I made a lot of the changes that made him
0: Wh- come What to was life. what was Peter Jackson like? The legendary Peter Jackson. I was in New Zealand not that long ago. Every place says, "Well, Lord of the Rings was here, and The Hobbit was there, and Peter Jackson is a god there. He's—he's he's helped their gross domestic product dramatically because everyone comes to see this stuff."
1: Well, what was really interesting about New Zealand is there was really a, a point of pride for the Lord of the Rings. Yeah. So again, that kind of love of craft that I spoke about earlier yeah. was really existing. They there. Had that. And so people would just, they were all in, in terms of yeah. trying to do the best possible job and make New Zealand Middle Earth. I found Peter kind of very straightforward, mm-hmm. really down to earth. Um, you know, he was dealing with a lot of things. He, he, um, He had directors all over the continent shooting different scenes. So I remember being on set one day, and he had five different video screens, and he was looking at different takes from Mm. all over the country to try and approve them. So I think making The Lord of the Rings was a really stressful Mm -hmm. thing for Peter, and I know his health was not very good after. He had put on a lot of weight, and he was... He was not well, so he needed to take stock and and change things at the end of it,
0: yeah, so you were there for for the six months or so and yeah
1: about si- about six months and um and it was just so much work i mean it was it was about eight months to the release of the two towers uh which but, was the one that really introduced gollum in a you know in a much more of an acting way
0: how, how did you feel when you saw it on? in in a movie theater?
1: It's very hard to see my work on the movie theater. What I do is I watch people reacting to the character on the screen. So when I look at it, I see the problems and I see... Because it's never
0: perfect. You say, oh, I could have done that.
1: Yeah, and then I, I know the story between... Uh-huh. You know, how it got up there of and course. the decisions that were made of and course. all that. So it's really hard for me to see Middle Earth. I just see the studio and the issues. and the. Yeah. But when I see people react, that's the fun for me. That's yeah. when I sure. experience joy.
0: Okay, so now here's a little non sequitur for you. What does President Obama think about all this?
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, what I knew, I, I mean, the Obamas actually are very good friends with my family in Chicago. And so they knew him when he was Senator Obama. And they actually did. He decided to run for president um, after coming to Colorado and visiting people at the Aspen Institute. Mm -hmm. And so he was staying at my my sister's family's house in Aspen. And so I got up uh, out of bed one morning, put on my robe, was going to get breakfast. And my sister came down and said, oh, by the way, Senator Obama's here. And, and I thought was he
0: here, there with, with Michelle and the Kids? No, or no, just, no, not with Michelle,
1: ju- just him. Yeah. So he was going to do a lecture at the Aspen Institute okay. and kind of introduce himself. Hmm. Um so I, I walked into the kitchen and there's Senator Obama with <laughs> his paper. I think it was in his robe and we were passing Cheerios. <laughs> Um and and so we were having coffee and we were just kind of talking a little bit. Nobody cared, no one knew who he was. And so I I asked him some really interesting questions. I asked him a little bit about how you deal with politically charged situations, you know, at work. How how do you handle difficult people? And some of the things he said were just so meaningful to me and I think really says a lot about his presidency at the same time. Mm -hmm. He said the most important thing when you're in political conflict is to keep people at the table. He said, as long as you keep people at the table, there's hope for negotiation. Mm -hmm. But if people walk away from the table, then you lose that ability. So he said, I see my job is keeping people at the table. And I thought, I thought that was really, really interesting. And then the next thing I asked him, I said, so what's the first day of Congress like? Like, how was that? Is that cool? And he said, well, it's really kind of like the first day of school, except you have a really nice breakfast. <laughs> and then you're assigned a desk and you get a basket with, you know, your staplers and your... Just like oh, any old job. Just like any old job. And I started laughing and I thought, wow, that's pretty funny. He said, "But what people don't know is, before people leave their Senate seats in the in the drawers of their desk, they actually carve their names with like a peck knife."
0: The 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 senators carve their names.
1: Yes, in the in the drawers. <laughs>
0: like summer camp. Okay, uh, I
1: know. And I thought, well, that's it. But it, what a wonderful human mm. component, right? So, so I said, well, that's interesting. So, Senator Obama, who was in your drawers? Uh, and he said he knew he had a lot to a lot to do because when he opened his door, it was Robert Kennedy's door. Oh my! Wow. And I thought, and I just thought that was so interesting. That's great. Yeah, isn't that that's a fun, a yeah. fun thing yeah. to learn?
0: Um,
1: so I'll keep him at, a ta- at the table and be inspired by Robert <laughs> Kennedy. <laughs>
0: that's that's pretty good advice. Uh, <laughs> we, we we're gonna we're gonna wrap up. I have one last question for for sure. you. Uh, and in some ways, a lot of what you said has is, is kind of gone, gone a long way towards answering this. But uh, imagine going back in time mm-hmm. uh, to when you were 21 and uh, you could magically sit next to yourself. Uh, given what you know and what you've experienced in your life to date, what advice would you have for your 21-year-old self?
1: Well, I would say go take Professor Hanois' class at Dartmouth. It's yeah. in the computer good, science good answer So that's yes. a good thing. But basically I would t- I would say have some fun. Hmm. Have some fun, don't be so hard on yourself all the time. Realize that life is much more malleable than these labels and these so-called paths that we're supposed to stay on in life. Build a life, don't just take a job. And that takes time and don't be afraid to make some mistakes in the process right. because that's how you learn.
0: Right. Build, build a life, don't just take a job. Build a
1: life, don't just take a
0: job. Thank you so much, Patty. It's been a pleasure talking to you.
1: It's my pleasure. Thank you for having me.